Hello, and welcome to the very first Talk to Defeat ALS podcast of 2018 here at the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter. I'm your host, Tony Heil, the Director of Communications and Public Policy here at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter. And um, in the past, you've heard some many interesting perspectives on ALS from people who are living with the disease to family caregivers, doctors, nurses, advocates, and uh, I hope that you've appreciated it. You can find all of it on our iTunes channel. Please subscribe or on podbean.com and on Stitcher and also on our website, which is alsphiladelphia.org. Today, we're going to start 2018 with someone who I've always found to be really fun and thoughtful person who is living with ALS, Father John Wagner, who lives in the Lehigh Valley. And we're going to be talking about his life experiences before ALS, how ALS has impacted his life and uh, support with the chapter. Again, if you want to support the ALS Association and our care services and research, please donate or volunteer online at www.alsphiladelphia.org or uh, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Snapchat, we did that once, all at ALS Philadelphia, one word. And so without further ado, and I'm not really sure what ado is, aside from a haircut, which I don't get because I don't have any hair. I'd like to introduce all of our listeners to our friend Father John Wagner from the Lehigh Valley. Good morning, Tony. Good morning. Uh, Thank you so much for coming to meet with us and share your story. Um, I don't know your story very well. We've talked before at Advocacy and at The Walk. So tell me a little bit about yourself before ALS, because most of your life did not have ALS in it. Yeah. Yeah, a a number of years. (laughs) One or two. Were without ALS. Um, well, let's see. I was reared as an army brat, mm-hmm. so lived all over multiple the places in this country as well as uh, several tours to Germany. Wow! As a youth, um, I mean, your dad was in the military. Yes, yes, made a career of it. Um, when I got out of high school, I did eight years in the Navy, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Went back on the GI Bill to finish a bachelor's degree. Um, some people are a little surprised, although I am at this point an Episcopal priest. The majority of my professional career was working as a civil engineer and a land surveyor. Which is part of the reason I like talking to you. Um, maybe people don't know I serve on a, count, on a borough council and we talked about borough engineer work and right. local stuff like that. Um, how did you like... Serving in the Navy, how, how did you like all of that? And, and even just moving around the country. Well, um, both as a child and when I was in the Navy, I loved travel. Mm-hmm. I, I loved to have an opportunity to get to know different cultures, uh, different ways of life. Um, actually, at, at this point, I kind of wonder if maybe I should have stayed in the Navy, mm-hmm. although... At that point, um, my wife and I were married uh, before I was discharged and decided to go back to Penn State for a bachelor's. And, uh, then the option to go back on active duty was always there, although I certainly didn't uh, choose to follow it. So did you do engineer work with the Navy then? Is that, Or did that guide you to doing that afterwards because you found it interesting? I, I was an airborne anti-submarine warfare operator. When was this? Um, this, let me see, I went in in 64 and was discharged in 72. 
So I guess this is kind of the height of the Cold War. Vietnam era. Oh, Vietnam. I, yeah, right. I, I'm thinking submarines. I'm thinking that. But, right. Uh, right. Did you have to go to Vietnam? No. Actually, my father was in Vietnam, mm -hmm. and the Navy would not send me any place west of the Atlantic. <laughs> That's nice of them. Because so, Vietnam took a couple years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got uh, I got to, to get well acquainted with the North Atlantic, Caribbean, uh, Mediterranean, mm -hmm. and never did anything with the Pacific Fleet. And I'm sure, what, what was your favorite place to, to be? My grandfather was a Navy veteran, too. Oh. Not, not that time period. He was uh -huh. older, but... And he had ALS, so you both okay. were similar. And uh, he also didn't have a lot of hair. <laughs> <laughs> Between us, we couldn't keep a barber busy. <laughs> uh, and so he, uh, and I think he really liked the same thing, going, he, he was in Japan and right. Guam. What, did you have any places that you really, like, stuck out even today? That well, uh, although it was a relatively short visit, uh, both of them were, the two that really stick out um, were uh, Italy uh, had a chance to get down to Pompeii and mm -hmm. see the ruins there. And the other was just an overnight uh, trip by aircraft, not by the carrier, mm -hmm. to uh, Leith, Scotland, which was a sub-pen uh, base. And although I didn't get to see a lot of Scotland, I would very, very much like to have a chance to go back and visit it. Do you, do you have any Scottish background or anything? None of which I'm aware. Yeah? I don't need to do a 23andMe kind of thing and I, find I, out that I should be wearing kilts. My, well, you, you don't have to. <laughs> I, uh, but I got my mom one of those uh, DNA kits for Christmas. Because there's a number of companies with their oh, interests. Oh, yes, yes. We're always interested to learn. Uh, so you never know when you're doing that what you're going to learn. See, right. And then, so you became a civil engineer, right. and you did that for how long? Well, um, let's see. I, I was licensed by the Commonwealth duly as a professional engineer and a professional land surveyor, and it was the uh, end of 2011 I sent my license back to Harrisburg, Mark retired. And at that point, the reason I sent them back and an overlap of about 20 years, Tony, with the engineering and the priesthood. Mm -hmm. um, actually, in the middle of my engineering career, I was teaching full-time at a college. Okay. Had night classes, so went back to seminary days to study for the priesthood. So the first 20 years of my priesthood, I was supporting my family working as an engineer and a land surveyor, and then doing supply work as the bishop needed it done. Saturdays, I went and got a second master's to do volunteer work. That's, <laughs> I feel very lazy at the moment. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, there's a lot of people here that I've, I, like I said, interviewed a lot of folks for the podcast or writing stories and, um, it really, and you, through your work, cause you've met so many people, so maybe you uh -huh. appreciate this. I often go back and think, I really need to do more with my life. <laughs> I, <laughs> but I'm tired. <laughs> Why sure, sure. So you, what can for? I know what a civil engineer does. Like I said, I mm -hmm. a, a bit because I we do that work on my other role. But can you tell people who are listening what you did? Well, civil engineering is the broadest type of engineer. Initially, there were only two flavors of engineers: civil and military. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so civil did everything that military engineers didn't. Um, civil engineering today is so broad that you normally uh, do a subspecialty. My master's from Villanova is in transportation engineering. And early in my career, I was doing predominantly airport design. Um, worked on Lehigh Valley Airport, uh, the uh, one in Reston, Virginia. Nice. Uh, State College, uh, Quaker Town. That, I didn't even realize. I mean, I don't think about all those airports, yeah. but that's that's neat because when it's built, you were able to take some sense of accomplishment. You see exactly, it. and and I've always enjoyed uh, the soft side of engineering rather than sitting at a desk and crunching numbers. Um, I was doing an awful lot of planning work. Um, there were really exciting things called ANCLUC studies, and that's uh, airport noise control and land use compatibility. As a municipal official, you would appreciate the fact that the municipalities want to regulate flight patterns right. so that it impacts people the least possible while still providing the transportation service. So I was doing those ANCLUC studies to help define flight corridors. So I imagine because you're doing the flight corridor and you want to make sure everyone's safe, you went into the seminary just so you could pray that everything works. <laughs> that, that, um, more, you're not the first <laughs> to make that connection, to right? Me. And yes, as a matter of fact, I did. And how many accidents did you have? Uh, none. See? <laughs> Must have worked. <laughs> Everyone else tried. Not, not my work, Tony. His. <laughs> Take the credit when you can, I guess. Uh, so you, you have a lot that you could. You know, you write it down on paper, but you have a lot that you could look at and say, I was a part of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, I, when I go to uh, Lehigh Valley Airport, the existing terminal building, um, I was on the staff of the engineering firm when that was designed and built. Uh, I remember the day when ABE was really almost a, a Quonset hut uh, and a very, very localized airport and I was working for the engineering firm that uh, designed the construction management for the current facilities at ABE. Hmm. One of the more exciting projects. It sounds really neat to me. I, I yeah. know I know how it feels on our end to just put together a press conference or put together a billboard or, right. or something like that and it feels neat that people see it. For that you, you know people are using it and you're, you know you did a good job. Oh, yes, yes. And I'm sure your Navy background really helped with knowing what to do, knowing the things to think about, who to appeal to, right? It did, it did indeed. And uh, because of my work with the uh, Lehigh Valley Airport Authority, uh, that's where early on I got the interest in municipal services. And mm -hmm developed that a little later in my career, uh, serving as a municipal engineer, uh, planning commission consultant, member zoning hearing board, and writing all those wonderfully exciting zoning ordinances and uh, subdivision and land development ordinances. Everybody loves zoning ordinances. You know, they do. They it's do. They, they, they claim that there is a sure cure for insomnia. <laughs> 
I've been in meetings where I've heard about zoning things, and I know people are zoning out. Exactly. Yes. yes. But it's important because, you know, the, someone comes up and they're they like, I want to build a balcony. And it's like, well, there's a reason why it exists. This rule exactly. exists. Exactly. And, and yeah. most, of the, most of it's not arbitrary. Sometimes someone doesn't know what they're doing, but most of the time there's a reason for those rules. Exactly. Yeah. So, that, so you did that for over 20 years. Right. Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, engineering wise, in total, uh, close to forty. Forty years. I haven't done anything for forty years. <laughs> Give me, uh, including having lived, Tony. Yeah, that's what I mean. I think so. Sometimes, I, sometimes I feel older because I'm getting older, but that's true. So then, let's go into. <clears throat> you were diagnosed with ALS. Yes. And so you live in the Lehigh Valley. Yes. And you live in the Lehigh Valley for 40 years now, right? For well, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to give around then. Right. Um, so when did you first start realizing something was wrong? Because you had to go to a doctor. To... Oh, yes. Yes. The, <laughs> the route to diagnosis. Well, I was having some problems uh, walking. And they were kind of multi-focused. One was a hip pain. Mm -hmm. And as I come to find out, it's very, very common with folks diagnosed with ALS, um, wound up having spinal surgery for stenosis. And the pain went away, but the unsteadiness in walking did not. Hmm. So I opted to continue in a diagnostic process and try to determine what was going on, thinking it's something that whatever it turns out to be, it may be an operation, it could be medication, but we can take care of this. So you had the intuition that something's not quite right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Tony. And uh, I was firmly convinced in the 21st century there were tests for almost everything. Mm Mm-hmm. And that uh, what I knew uh, in in the midst of all that, I did several years as an emergency medical tech um, on a volunteer basis. So as of as course, in, like I said, you're not trying to make me feel lazy. Enough. No, 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 not at all. Uh, but as an EMT, I, I was used to testing and some medical uh, background, and it shocked me to find out that with many neuromuscular diseases, they're still using the old practice of differential diagnosis. For people who don't know. Throw everything on the board that it possibly could be, test for what you can, rule things out, and when you're left with one possibility, that becomes the default diagnosis. Now, that is a very frustrating process to so many people. How oh, did you deal with that? thank you for cleaning that up. <laughs> well, I wouldn't you... have been nearly as kind. <laughs> well, so did you, because you've gone through things, you, um, you're you a very thoughtful person, you've gone through you know, your ministry and whatnot. How did you approach that? Was it very, ang- were you angry? Was it frustrating? Were you just like, that's how it is? Um, I was accepting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't know what you were accepting of. Right. Then. Right. Um, I, I was, early on, I was expecting, okay, I'll go in, there'll be a blood draw, maybe an MRI, an x-ray or two, we'll have a diagnosis, and I'm, I'm right. on the way to healing. And as the diagnostic process drug on and on and on, um, I got frustrated 
not angry, Tony, mm-hmm. just, just frustrated. Um, I could not have asked for a, a, a better physician. Um, I have the, the highest respect for, for Dr. Mackin. I assume it's okay to mention names. I was going to ask you about <laughs> it. I, love, I, found very, I don't think I've found anyone that doesn't like Dr. Mackin. Well, and, and he's a wonderful combination of an excellent clinician and a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's relatively rare, I, I believe. Um, he gave me, I'm going to say in late 2014, early 2015, a working diagnosis of an orphan of an orphan disorder known as primary lateral sclerosis or PLS. Right. Now, for folks listening who aren't familiar with motor neuron systems, um, they, they come in two major flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, there are upper motor neurons, which is brain to spinal, and then lower motor neurons, which is the spinal cord out to the individual muscles that enable us to move and blink and talk and do those things. All of the uh, signs which Dr. Mackin noted were upper motor neuron. Mm. And primary lateral sclerosis, or PLS, is a disease solely of the upper motor neurons. Uh, Most neuromuscular specialists will follow a patient for multiple years doing repeat EMGs, uh, electromyelographs, to determine if lower motor neuron signs are cropping up at any point in time. So I believe that's why Dr. Mackin labeled it a working diagnosis was to follow. In December of 15, he did find lower motor neuron signs. Um, dear, dear Dr. Mackin, like I say, an, an exceptionally good clinician and a wonderful human being, who didn't say a word in December of 15 and gave me the diagnosis that day. Um, I've joked with him subsequently that he should never, ever, ever plan a career in high-stakes poker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it, was, it was ever so evident uh, just from Dr. Mackin's unspoken word that he had found lower motor neuron. And he is someone that takes it very personally. Obviously. Exactly. Doesn't lift, he doesn't, Dr. Mackin, and for those who don't know Dr. Mackin at Lehigh Valley Health Network, has been working with our chapter for uh, at least, I think, 20 years. I don't know exactly how long, but he's very passionate about caring for ALS families. Well, and, and quite candidly, he and the rest of the care team up there, which are the ones I know best, they're folks who pop into my prayers most frequently because... I can't imagine going to medical school, becoming licensed as a physician, and specializing in a disorder for which, to the point in 2015, there was no truly meaningful treatment, and still to this day, there is no cure. Yeah. So every time you give somebody the diagnosis, you know what the eventual outcome's going to be, and you're powerless to change it. I, I have such great respect for folks who can go to work every day and still deal with people like people, uh, knowing that 
every time they give a diagnosis, the outcome is certain. Well, and that's why we wanted to start this podcast by talking about your life before ALS, because mm-hmm. most per, for, for people, most of their life is before they were diagnosed. Exactly. And that's, that's who they are. I mean, if I was, if you're diagnosed with ALS at age 60, then you had 60 years where you were this person that didn't have it. And you're still that person after you have ALS, but you, you're a person first, not an ALS patient first. Thanks, thanks for being ever so generous, Tony, but I was 70. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not sure if the speaker picked that up, but the... I'm just saying in general. Yeah, in general, right. Even if you're diagnosed at 35, you know, you have 35 years where you exactly did all yeah. these things. Why yeah. that shouldn't be discounted? Now you're just a patient, and I think that's how our association approaches that. Right. So, right. so you connected with the chapter. Dr. Mack, I'm sure, told you here's a service that's available. Well, actually, it was even a little more uh, direct than that. ALS patients, uh, in general, attend multidisciplinary clinics. Right. And even while the working diagnosis was PLS, Dr. Mackin scheduled me for a clinic in April of uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. And as part of that multidiscipline team, a delightful social worker by the name of Wendy Barnes was part of the team. So I got to know ALS Philadelphia face-to-face in the form of Wendy the day that I was diagnosed. That's, and Wendy has been around for a long time. She started, I think she started with ALS before the chapter at those support groups. Oh my goodness. So she obviously connected you with services absolutely um you can there's a podcast with wendy barnes you can search for and find in our archives um so how has wendy and those supports how have they are service to you or how have you seen them be a service to other people with als well um i know that uh i know through wendy that there are multiple things available to me from a loaner closet if i need any kind of equipment that the association might have is it's available for loaner. Um, personally, I get so much out of the support group meetings, uh, and Wendy chairs those uh, in her inimitable style yeah. and very, very beautifully. Um, it's an opportunity once a month to get together with other persons with ALS and their caregivers and spend time touching base, reminding one another that although sometimes it feels like we're very much alone, we're really not. Um, To be in a room with Wendy and Jesse, who was the social worker on Dr. Mack and staff, and then another, golly, anywhere from six to 15 families where you don't need to explain a whole lot because everybody understands and everybody knows. Right. That's a big thing. It, it is. There's it a is. lot of listening as much as there is. Probably more listening than anything else. Right. And, and it's, it really is a relief uh, not to have to explain the disease. Right. 
On the other hand, I've gotten wonderful support and wonderful encouragement from the people around me. Mm-hmm. The, the people in the parish from which I just retired a week and a half ago. Um, and which parish is that? So we can uh, St. Mark's and St. John's mm-hmm. and Jim Thorpe. Um, wonderfully, wonderfully supportive. Um, but like anybody, uh, well, like almost anybody, when the, when you hear the terms ALS, somebody in my age group might connect it to Lou Gehrig and know it's fatal. <coughs> and for most folks, I would suspect that's about the limit of their knowledge and understanding. So you do wind up doing an awful lot of explanation. When I was diagnosed in, in when I got the diagnosis in April of uh, 16, um, I did inform the parish right away. Mm-hmm. Through the work that I had done in the engineering field, I knew that in order to get any kind of accommodation for a disability, my employer needed to know. Right. So I did speak with our governing body, and then that Sunday disclosed the diagnosis to the general parish membership. And Tony, I remember going through some basic explanation of what was going on. And a couple people thanked me ever so much because I had them promise to stay the Dickens away from Dr. Google. No. (laughs) You know, you can get on the internet and find absolute horror stories. And you can do that for anything. Well, and and this, this particular disorder, I don't know about some of the others, Tony, but with this particular disorder... Even if you go to very reputable sites, the National Institute of Health, the Mayo Clinic, you're going to get statistically correct numbers that are going to scare the daylights out of you. Right. They are statistically correct. What they don't emphasize enough, I believe, is that there are outliers. Because of my work in engineering and my work as a professor of engineering and physics, um, I I love to study the work of Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. Have for decades prior to my diagnosis enjoyed his work. But nobody thinks of Stephen Hawking when they're reading on something like the National Institute of Health website Average life expectancy, two to five years. They don't think of Stephen Hawking. No, everyone points to the worst case scenario. Exactly. I, I know, like, on a lighter note, we, have, my wife and I have two kids, two and four. Uh-huh. And if, when my son has a rash, my wife looks it up and she's like, I think it's chickenpox. Like, no, he has a vaccine. It's not chickenpox. Right. Or, and it's just the way you look it up and you get nervous. Absolutely. And I, I mean, she's an excellent mother, but that's what you think when you start seeing stuff yeah. you don't recognize. But... So I want to make sure while we have time, you talked about the support from the support groups and being around people that understand it. Uh-huh. Two other ways you've been involved with people with ALS and the ALS cause is the walk to defeat ALS in Lehigh Valley. Right. And advocacy in Harrisburg. Okay. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about um, how those have uh, been a benefit to you or 
uh, well, a positive experience? Um, the uh, the walk to defeat ALS is at uh, at Coca Cola Park in the fall. Um, again, it's it's an opportunity for a larger community of supporters of persons with ALS. And by the way, person with ALS is a pals. Right. <laughs> you know, for for those for those folks listening in who may not have been used to that. Um, it's an opportunity for a, a, a larger community of supporters for PALS to come together. I know it is a fundraising event, and I know that this disease needs all of the funds for research we can possibly raise. In my world, it's probably as important, perhaps more so, that those communities of supporters get an opportunity to spend the day together. Yeah, it's always nice. I see people that, like, I don't get to see too often. Same here. And they like seeing me for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> um, I like seeing them. There's certain people, especially at different walks, because they're far away from me. And it's it's nice seeing someone I haven't seen in months. Right. And seeing that they're doing well and they're with their family and happy. Yeah. And And... It, it helps the sense of connectedness, mm-hmm. and it very much supports the knowledge that no one is alone in the midst of this. Right. Tony, I'm going to be really candid. I, Finally. I was, I was, I was almost <laughs> 70 when I got that diagnosis. It was, it was a shock. Right. Um, I think it's as close to being unkind with Dr. Mackin as I've ever been when I looked at him and said, are you absolutely certain? <laughs> in, in a less than jovial way. Um, but my heart goes out, first of all, to the men and women in their 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. With young families, with graduations that haven't yet occurred and weddings that haven't yet happened. That's where my heart goes. Right. I mean, if I look at the average lifespan of males in my family, I've got another 15, maybe 20 years. Mm -hmm. But I'd give that up in a heartbeat if it would help a younger person. Yeah. And even more than that, And I don't mean to seem at all morbid, but since we all know where this disease finally winds up, for those of us who suffer from the disease, there will be relief. Mm. The caregivers that are left behind are the ones for whom I worry and pray the most. Especially, like you said, those people, not just the persons with ALS that are in their 30s and 40s, but the the caregivers, their spouses. I think about that as someone in their 30s myself with kids. I... That's what hits me the most too. Well, and and I've watched I've watched survivors where a spouse or a close family member has had something like Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and invariably, after the one suffering is no longer present, the caregiver falls into, "What could I have done differently?" Oh, of course. If I had done this, would it have helped? Mm-hmm. And those kind of mind games are terribly, terribly, terribly frightening. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think of that myself with my own family. Oh, yeah. Um, That's where my heart goes. Now, 
So it's good to me to see caregivers, uh, pals, their local communities join together for fundraising. But more importantly, at something like the Walk to Defeat ALS, just the joining of community. And for those of you who want to take part in that community aspect and be a part of the Walk to Defeat ALS, you can go to alsphiladelphia.org. There's a Walk to Defeat ALS button there. Um, you can join the Lehigh Valley one if you're near there, but you can go to any of the walks and register now and or donate to a team. Uh, but definitely, as great it is to donate, being there is the best part. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the other thing you've done, and we did this last year, you came to Harrisburg with me for advocacy. Absolutely. Helped out with our friend Sender Pat Brown, who's been a really big champion for us for funding for ALS Care Services. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can, can you briefly just say, like, would you recommend other people do the same thing? Oh, absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, I've read I've read uh, a few comments from legislators about the effect of those days, and working with local municipalities uh, tangentially with Commonwealth level. It's ever so different when somebody rolls into a legislator's office in a power wheelchair and speaks through an adaptive speech process, that has an impact that sitting and reading a handout simply can't have. Right. Even in my case, where I am still ambulatory and, thank goodness, I'm still able to talk. Otherwise, this would be a boring podcast. Uh, you know, it would be an ever-so-boring podcast. <laughs> people have heard me before. It's more interesting yeah. than you. But... Having people whose lives are directly impacted by this disease, speaking to a legislator or a, a legislator's aide, looking for funding so that we can finally find a cure and those younger families don't have to go through this nightmare any longer. Nobody, but nobody can do that as effectively as a person with ALS or a caregiver of mm -hmm. a person with ALS. Our stories ring true because we live it. Mm -hmm. It's not that we have sat and read a book and become an expert. It's that every day when we try to get up and can't, when we stumble on the way to morning coffee, or we wind up in an adaptive device of some kind that the reality sinks back in. And we can go into a legislator's office and speak from the heart about what we experience. And no written or video is ever going to do that. Yeah, it's true. We have good videos, but you're right, having that face-to-face. -face. If you would like to join me for advocacy this year, you can email Tony at ALSPhiladelphia.org, and I'm happy to add more people to our um, to our support and to, to go to these meetings in Harrisburg and to or in Washington, D.C., and to New Jersey and to Delaware. Uh, your voices make a difference. Well, was, you, you met with people, and they became big supporters. And we're going to be in Harrisburg on May 2nd, 2018 this year. And uh, our Advocacy Day in Washington, D.C. is Mother's Day weekend, as it tends to be. That's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So you can uh, register for that at alsa.org slash advocacy. 
So there's lots of ways. There's a lot of reason to, as terrible as ALS is, to feel there's a po- there are positive ways to make a difference in 2018. Right. right. Now, can I ask for a minor accommodation? You can. Is it necessary that I email you, or can I just tell you I'll be in Harrisburg with you? Well, I'll, I'll write it down, because you're Thank here. Thank you. <laughs> it's easier for people to email me than to feel like they have to come into the office and do all that. So I'll put it down. <laughs> I'll email you. <laughs> So uh, thank you, Father John, for sharing your story. Um, I was going to try and split this up, but I don't really know a time that's, you know, it's just so easy to talk with you about your life, and I appreciate you sharing all these details with us. Well, that wasn't more than 15 minutes, was it? It was about 40. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but you have a lot to say, and it's it's good. that we're. Um, I think that people do have a lot to say. Your stories, wherever you're listening, if you're a person with ALS, a caregiver, or just a friend, your stories make a difference. Um, please share them on our blog, through a podcast or video, through social media. Um, as Father John said, your stories can, can change the world. So you can do that at ALSPhiladelphia.org. If you have any suggestions or want to get involved too, you can email me, Tony, at ALSPhiladelphia.org. Thank you to our sponsors and volunteers. Thank you to Father John for being with us here. You're quite welcome, sir. And please make sure to subscribe and follow us on uh, iTunes today.